Welcome to The Craft. I'm your host, Mae Globus. This podcast is a collection of intimate conversations on artistry, mastery, and life with talented, passionately curious creatives and entrepreneurs. Most are dear friends, some are those I've admired from afar. I hope you enjoy these conversations, this exploration of the humanity that connects all of us as much as I do having them. Thank you for being here and for listening. This episode is sponsored by Happy Fox Health, a natural supplement brand focused on CMOS, a marine algae that has 92 out of 102 essential nutrients that your body needs to thrive and regenerate. I've used a number of their products and found it's really given me clarity of mind. Visit happyfoxhealth.com and use promo code THECRAFT for an exclusive 15 to 20% discount off your first product purchase. When Shannon Heth walks into a room, it's hard not to be drawn in by her presence. Once you're in conversation, it's hard not to be captivated by her intelligence. After a stint in film and wardrobe after university, Shannon found her stride as a publicist, working at agencies and with clients in both Vancouver and New York before founding her own agency, Milk Communications. She grew up in Edmonton, Alberta, the only child of academic parents. Her mother was a gallery curator at the University of Alberta, and her father was a psychology professor. The family traveled extensively during her childhood, allowing Shannon to experience global culture and expand her perspective at a young age. She was also an equestrian. Horses were a passion for her then and still are today. In her 10 plus years in publicity and living between Vancouver and New York, she's found her PR niche in the art, restaurant, and fashion lifestyle worlds. More recently, Shannon co-wrote and launched her first book, Cinderella You Bitch, with celebrity makeup artist Bo Nelson, a longtime friend of hers. In this conversation, we go deep into how travel was an essential part of her upbringing and what she learned about the world, religion, and spirituality at a young age, the natural unfolding of her journey into PR, why she's been drawn to horses since childhood, the healing journey she's been on with plant medicine and psychedelics for the last few years, the things she's learned about her ego, love, and happiness since doing the world's most powerful psychedelic, 5-MeO-DMT, what she misses about New York and why it calls to her, the process of writing her first book and how it went co-authoring with a close friend, the one thing she wants her sons to know most about who she is, and more. Please enjoy this intimate and open conversation with a stunning, intelligent, and eloquent soul, Shannon Heth. Shannon Heth, welcome. Hello. Hello. Welcome to The Craft. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. I know. Very excited. Very excited for this convo. Mm-hmm. Me too. So I was thinking about when we first connected. And I think the first time I heard your name was through our mutual friend, Rebecca Tay. Yes. Who is now living far away, sadly, in Australia. But she's very happy there, looks like. Um, but also, you're in PR. Mm-hmm. And when we met, I was still writing fashion, yeah. restaurants. And so there was some work there. I Definitely. was getting your like press releases and pitches. You and were coming to name, the events. Coming to the events. Mm-hmm. We're both really good friends with Tiffany Soper and mm-hmm. Melania De La Cruz who were on on the pod. Yes. Yeah. Wonderful guests. Wonderful, wonderful. Wonderful women. Exactly. And so I've known you for a long time, but I would say we've grown closer over the last two years. I agree. Yeah, we yeah. have. It's been nice. It's it was been really a, nice. a pandemic blessing. It was. There are it some really of those. <laughs> yeah. No, it's it's uh it's been really really nice to 
to have you in my life in a, in a deeper way. Well, I feel the same. Thank you. <laughs> Let's take it back. Let's go to All Edmonton. Right. Yes. Yes. Tell me more about that time in your life. Uh, well, I was born and raised there. Uh, lived there until I was 18. Uh, fairly, you know, stable, lovely, normal upbringing. Just, you know, cold winters, hot summers. Um, it's funny when I was trying to decide. Well, I went from Edmonton to Calgary. I went to university in Calgary. And then I didn't want to stay in Alberta, and I wanted to go either east or west, Toronto or Vancouver. And I just, I couldn't do cold winters anymore. It was like Vancouver was the choice purely based on weather alone. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> because when I was growing up, my mom wouldn't drive me to school unless it was minus 30. Wow. So I had to walk and wait for the bus for, you know, junior high, high school, uh, if it was minus 29.9, still walking. She was very, like, adamant about that. So sometimes I was like, please be minus 30, please, <laughs> so I can get a ride. <laughs> so it did, I think it made me tough to the weather, but since I've been out here, I, like, can't handle the cold anymore. Yeah. yeah, I bet you had some really good snowsuits. Yeah, yeah, I did. I mean, it's funny, like, Edmonton was a, it was a great place to grow up. I went to a great school. Um, you know, got in a fair share of trouble, I suppose. It's a university city. My dad worked at the University of Alberta uh, for decades. And um, yeah, just like I think a part of town we lived in was very close to the university. So lots of young people and, mm -hmm. um, you know, the occasional frat party that I would sneak into <laughs> underage. Oh, you rebel. I know. <laughs> so your mother was a curator at the um, gallery at the University of Alberta. Yeah. And your dad was a professor of psychology there as well. Correct. So is that where they, they met then? No, they didn't meet there. Um, they actually first met on a plane to India. Um, my mom and my dad were both on a, it was a, I think it was a college trip uh, to go to India and my mom tells the story about how my dad was late getting on the plane and she saw him he kind of held up the plane for a bit and she was sort of like who is this doofus <laughs> keeping us waiting uh, but then they bonded while they were in India and stayed in touch and have been together ever since they celebrated their 50th wedding anniversary a couple of years ago um, yeah just you know true love yeah how was India for them um, it was good. I think that, you know, they have always instilled in me this um, support of travel. And, you know, I don't think my mom traveled a lot when she was growing up. Um, her parents would go away, but she would sort of be left home with a nanny and her brother. And uh, she has always loved traveling. And, and my dad traveled a bit more he has um a number of siblings and they would sort of pack up the van or the car and, and travel on road trips so I think they both mutually just love travel so much um so it was a great way for them to meet and then as kids my brother and I were always taking trips with them they were always taking us on adventures I think the first time I traveled I was seven we went to Mexico uh but since then 
I've been to countless countries. I've been through the Panama Canal twice. I've been through the Straits of Magellan. I've taken a cruise from Australia to New Zealand and stopped in, you know, various little islands along the way. I've, I've seen a lot, and it's really been such a wonderful way, I think, for me to learn about life and cultures and different ways of living. Um, my mom and I were actually back in India together a few years ago, and even just, you know, seeing the, the rich history and culture and the colors, I've never seen such vibrant colors in my life. It's like a completely different way of seeing the world and uh, I think I you know I'm obviously very grateful for the opportunity and the chance to see so many different places and now I try to do that with my kids as well it's something that you know I think my parents both sort of ingrained in me and I want to carry on the tradition Mm, yeah I know I remember you saying that you traveled quite a lot with your mom at a young mm-hmm. age, were there any particular places that you remember that really spoke to you when you were there as a as a young person, or or was it something where you were just too young to know the significance of being immersed in different cultures? Yeah, you know, one thing I wish I had done more of was to journal all of it. I think now we all sort of recognize the importance of journaling, and um, not even just as a memory, but I think just as a practice. So. You know, I have bits and pieces of memories, certain things. I mean, I remember um, being in Mexico and climbing up to the top of one of the ancient sort of, um, I can't think of the technical term for them, but like the pyramid style sort of structures there and not being able to get down or being scared of getting down. Like going up was, you know, fairly easy, but getting down looked very steep. And there was like a big long chain that we had to hold on to and I had to hold the chain all the way down. Um, so I like there's vivid memories of things like that. Um, but I think the one of the best things my mom and I ever did was um, I took a year off in university or I guess a, a, like a half a year, um, and we did this trip to History's Lost Cities. So it was through the American Museum of Natural History, and we visited places like Jordan and Oman and um, Beijing and um, Vietnam and like really incredible. just incredible places. We saw all these ancient cities, and um, one of the stops that we made was Lhasa in Tibet, and uh, I, you know, obviously heard about Tibet and, and heard about um, what was happening to the people of Tibet. And to really see it happening in, in real time was, you know, quite shocking. Um, there were people, there was, there's like a main market in Tibet. And you have, to, you have to walk, I think it's clockwise through this market. And if you go the other way, there will be Chinese guards that will stop you and tell you to walk the direction you're supposed to. But as you're walking through the market as a foreigner, a number of Tibetans will come up to you and like sort of grab your clothing and say like Dalai Lama, Dalai Lama, because they don't know where he is. Or, you know, at the time when I was traveling there, they were looking for things, uh, information about him and or pictures of him, which you were forbidden to, to share. And I think that was something that was really impressed upon me, just um, that people were living with this desire for their, you know, spiritual leader and having no information about him and then looking to someone like me to, to pass on any sort of mm. insight, but then also knowing that, you know, I wasn't allowed to do that. It was, right. it was really shocking to, I think, like, see and be immersed in that in real time. 
and my parents have since gone back to Tibet several times. Um, then I think it, you know, it really spoke to my mom spiritually as well. And it's obviously, you know, changed so much since we were there a number of years ago. How would you respond to people who were tugging at your your clothing? I mean, we were told by our guides not to really interact because, again, like you never quite know when you're there where you're being watched or or what's happening. So you have to be, you know, very careful with that. And, um, you know, I would sort of smile and shake my head and say no and you know, they were these beautiful women. I'd say the women of Tibet are like the most beautiful women I've ever seen. They just have the most incredible, joyful faces and the most beautiful clothing and jewelry. Um, and and just this, you know, the thing that really stuck out for me was just this sense of joy and happiness and peace and lightness, even though they were missing their, their spiritual leader so much. But... Um, yeah, I, I think, you know, all I could really do was just sort of say, you know, I'm sorry, I can't. And, mm. you know, I couldn't, I, it was, it was strange to be traveling and be so fearful without fear being right in front of you. Mm. I really, that was, I think what really I, I took from it as well was, you know, to sort of live in this constant state of feeling a bit aware of suspicion. Mm. Would you go back? I would love to go back. Yeah, I would. I'd love to, um, I'd love to go back and, my parents have done, they do a, a route around this mountain called Mount Kailash. And if you do it seven times, apparently you like skip a step to a uh, skip a step, sorry, to uh, enlightenment. Wow. So they've, I think they've done it three or four times. Mm. So, you know, they're halfway there. <laughs> are, your, are your parents spiritual people? Well, I was raised Catholic. Um, so, you know, church every Sunday and confession and communion and all of that um we went to actually a really nice church on the university campus so it was a smaller more intimate space a lot of university families there were always kids running around uh it wasn't as like formal a church setting as I think most and my parents still are catholic they still um go to service every sunday uh I I don't anymore um but I think that you know, I, there's, uh, I have several views and opinions on religion, but, um, you know, I think it, it does do in, when you look at it the right way, I think it's about love and understanding and peace and respect and, you know, trying to, to know morally right from wrong. I think where religion gets a little sticky for me is this idea of fear that it sometimes brings out in people. Like if I do this bad thing, I'm going to hell, right? Like this sense of fear to keep people on the quote unquote good side of things. I don't necessarily agree with as a doctrine, but I, you know, I think that there were some good teachings in there that I learned. And um, no, they, they, they're spiritual in, in that sense and that they, you know, still, practicing Catholics, but also interested in Buddhism and other spiritualities and, you know, open-minded. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I'd say they're, they're spiritual yeah. in general. Yeah. And what are they like individually? Um, my mom is, she's so much fun. She has this hilarious laugh that I actually inherited. <laughs> uh, you have a great it, laugh. We, we call it, well, we call it the honk. <laughs> basically sounds like like geese honking <laughs> which like I hope doesn't happen today uh, and my mom and I when she'll start then I'll start and she'll snort and then I'll laugh and then we both start honking and then we can't stop and then the tears are flowing and it's quite entertaining um 
especially when we do it together. But, you know, just like loving, smart, kind, fun, adventurous, um, you know, silly, just, yeah, great, wonderful, wonderful mom. And then my dad, um, very intellectual. I always remember growing up, if I didn't know the answer to something, I knew I could always ask my dad. And if my dad didn't know the answer, he would find it. Mm. And not just because he wanted to tell me, but because I think he in general was always so curious to know things uh, and to learn things. And one of the trips that we took, we went to Hawaii. This was obviously like way pre-internet or email or even fax. Um, And I met a really sweet Japanese girl on the beach and we spent like the week together. And then she went back to Japan, but we got her address and she got mine and we became pen pals. I think I was like eight or nine and uh, she couldn't speak English, so she wrote the letter in Japanese. And uh, my dad, had, I think, had a professor friend that could translate for us, so he translated it. But my dad, being my dad, decided that he was going to learn how to write Japanese characters so that we could write her back in Japanese. And so he actually like learned the Japanese alphabet and how to write things. And like this no was again way. like before. Google Translate yeah. or, you know. He learned he, hiragana. <laughs> yeah, he, uh, he, he looked it up. He learned it. He, you know, wrote the letters for me for about a year. We did that. Wow. Yeah. I mean, that's my dad. He yeah. just, he loves learning things, absorbing things. He reads mm-hmm. tons of books. You know, I guess that's why he's a great professor. Mm. Um, so, yeah. I'm curious, what, what did your, your pen pal's first letter say to you? Oh, my gosh. It was probably some, you know, eight or nine-year-old thing like, Thank you for being my friend. Thanks, thanks for you know. How are things in Edmonton? So cute. <laughs> I don't know. I, I I don't even know if we still have them. We might. Something so sweet about pen pals. I I had one too, um, from Sweden. I met this girl Johanna at a wedding, and she was one of the flower girls. And oh. yeah, and so again, we got each other's addresses, or our, our parents got it for us, and we pen pals for a while as well. But she could she could write in English, right? But there's something so sweet about having a pen pal and getting letters in the mail yeah. and opening it and being excited and stickers that are like they've stuck on it. And I know pictures. the time, right? Mm-hmm. I think it's like it's the the taking of the time to write something like that as a child to learn that, especially as someone who's raising two boys that have very, you know, limited attention spans, don't really want to sit down and write anything, have everything available at their fingertips now. Mm. I should get them some pen pals. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. And what about you? What were you like as a as a kid and then as a teenager? Um, I was very interested very early in horses. So um, I don't, I think I had like, all the My Little Ponies that there were. <laughs> and then I had a really good friend named Aaron Dorgan who also had My Little Ponies. And so we would, like, you know, play with our My Little Ponies. Uh, and I was always really creative as well. Like, my friend Aaron and I came up with this catalog that, uh, not the best name, but we ripped off, like, the Sears catalog because that was still a thing. And we called it Mirrors. 
<laughs> and we would like build out these magazines together. We'd spend like hours like cutting out pictures and putting them on paper and putting them in a binder and like building out these like visual catalogs of things and writing little stories and um yeah, hours and hours of of creating several editions of the Muse catalog. <laughs> um and then uh yeah, when I got into horseback riding, I did that pretty much every day full time. I got my first job at the stable where I rode at and learned to ride when I was about 10 or 11, getting horses ready for other little kids that were taking classes. Um, you know, cleaning out stalls and tacking them up and grooming them and taking the tack off, cleaning the tack. Uh, but I'd spend hours and hours there every day, especially during the summer. My parents would like drop me off at, I don't know, 9 a.m. and come pick me up at five. And I was yeah. just at the barn all day. Um, and you bought Fudgy. Fudgy. Yeah, my <laughs> first pony. So my parents, you know, were adamant that if I wanted a horse, which, I, you know, as a little girl who loved horses, I wanted a horse, that I would have to pay for it myself. And we lived in Edmonton at the top of this very long hill above this park called Horlack Park. And so in the summertime, there'd be all these music festivals that would happen down there and people would go up the hill in the hot Edmonton summers. And at the very top of the hill was our house. And I set up a lemonade stand and I sold a lot of lemonade. <laughs> and my mom would be like working in the kitchen, making the lemonade. And then we kind of advanced into more menu offerings like iced tea and like the occasional smoothie, just to, you know, <laughs> give some variety and make some more money. Uh, and I did that enough that I was able to, to save up the money for my first pony, Fudgy. Yeah. So that's incredible. You worked really hard. So, well, my mom did too. She, she made all the lemonade. <laughs> Didn't take a cut of the profits. It's very generous. <laughs> what about horses? Why do you think you were drawn to horses? I think they're just such beautiful spiritual animals. Um, the horse I have now, Louie, I've had since he was four, and he'll be 31 in April. Wow. Uh, yeah, I got him right out of high school and sort of in between the break between high school and university I went and rode horses in Europe for a little bit and uh, and I found him there and unfortunately I had a horse that had passed away and we had some insurance for that and so we took the, the money from Albert passing and I found Louie at that time. Um, I think that they're just such gifted calming creatures. I mean there are kids that um, have handicaps that ride horses where they see incredible improvements in their, you know, attention or even their mobility. Um, I think that they're just really soulful. There's a line, I think it's um, the best thing for the inside of a person is the outside of a horse. Mm. And I really believe that. Like I go see Louie and I'll take him for a walk now because he's too old to ride and we'll just, you know, spend an hour walking around and you know, I probably look like a crazy person, but sometimes I'll talk to him and like, you know, just just to have, you know, a nice, oh, calming, people. soothing animal spirit around is, yeah. is nice. And people talk to their pets all the time. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> wow. I didn't, I didn't realize that he was quite old, 30. Yeah. It's, yeah. 30, almost 31. So, wow. you know, it's getting to be that time where you kind of have to think about, mm. you know, he seems comfortable enough, but when is he not going to be, it's tough. I haven't had to make a decision like that before. And especially with an animal you've had that long. I mean, people have dogs for what, you know, 10, 12 years if you're lucky. But yeah, to have Louie for, you know, over half my life, mm -hmm. he's, he's a real part of me. So 
I try not to think about it too much, but I also feel like I have to honor him when it's time. Mm. Do what's right for him. Right, yeah. right. And as a teen, what were you like? Um, you know, I, I think I struggled to fit in a bit. I was always a bit... Um, want to say awkward but just different you know there were always like the cool girls in junior high that I wanted to be a part of but like couldn't quite because I didn't really want to fit in and be like them but I did uh a little rebellious you know I would sneak out to parties oh my god my parents don't even know that they're gonna know it now (laughs) um yeah I had this friend Jill Stickney who had a car it was this hilarious old Volvo that, like, literally, it was like a Flintstone car. Like, it had no bottom to the passenger side. Like, you could see the road as you were <laughs> driving. <laughs> like, it had this hole <laughs> in it. And so as soon as Jill got her license, you know, we would drive around. And, um, and because we were close to the university, every now and then we would, we would sneak into a frat party or two. And, like, it wasn't about, like, drinking or anything. I just really loved being at parties and dancing and having a good time. And then... Uh, you know, I would say that I was sleeping over at a friend's, but really Jill and I'd be sleeping in the back of the Volvo <laughs> and then going to high school the next day, taking a shower at like the YMCA downtown and then heading into high school. Oh, you you knew the plan. You knew all the routes. So busted right now. Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> and then in 03, you moved to Vancouver, but you yes. had already been in Calgary at that time, right? And you wanted to move to Vancouver because Calgary's feeling a little too small. It was feeling a little small. I was really interested in the art world. Um, and I just sort of felt like the keys to that part of the city were held by very few people. Um, just not a, not a scene that I was particularly interested in infiltrating. So, yeah, when it came down to the decision, I mean, yes, a bit weather-based. But really, I was, I was captivated by Vancouver. I'd been here a few times. I know the idea of winters being sunny with palm trees and by the ocean was certainly really appealing to me. And um, yeah, I made the move out here not really knowing anybody. I think I knew like one person uh, and got a job at Aritzia, just mm-hmm. like working on the floor at Aritzia mm-hmm. for a little while, as I think most people do. It's kind of like a rite of passage when you live to move to Vancouver or live in Vancouver, work mm. at Aritzia. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and yeah, just slowly built up a community here. Yeah, I was really undaunted by the idea of just going out and meeting people. Maybe it's from going to all those frat parties. I don't know. <laughs> but they, uh, they taught you a lesson. <laughs> right? Yeah. No, I, w- I would just go out to things. I mean, I, w- I would go out to, you know, I would go out to restaurants or nightclubs or eventually I started meeting people. You know, I go to parties, but I didn't. It was funny. Like some people say, Vancouver is really t- a tough city. I just really made it my mission to like meet as many people as possible, mm-hmm. and um, and I think that's just a way of being. Like you have to decide to do that, and then you vibrate at a level where I think people are just sort of recognize that um, you know you just want to have some conversation and, and meet some people, and you start to attract that. Yeah. So I think that was how I was able to. Yeah, just meet some really great people and start to build a community here. And you were you were dabbling in film, right? When I time? was in Calgary, yes, I worked. The way I was actually able to um, save enough money and move here was I worked in film specifically on commercials for a, a friend of mine, a producer named Terry Marsh. And he would get all the big commercial jobs in town. 
and I think I met Terry just out one night and we kind of hit it off. Um, and I, you know, I think I worked at a, I was working at a boutique in Calgary at the time called Ooh La La, <laughs> um, which is where I met one of my best friends, Bo Nelson, actually. And um, Terry just sort of, you know, I think ended up offering me a job in wardrobe. And I was like, wardrobe? I know clothes. I can do that. That seems easy. Uh, so I was like thrown into this world of commercials, uh, which I didn't realize was, you know, a lot of tedious shopping for like the same collared shirt in like 10 different colors, mm. only for a director to decide that they don't want a collared shirt anymore. <laughs> like, you know, things like that. Um, yeah, I have this crazy story where I worked with Tony Kay, the director of American History X, came to do a Citroen commercial that I worked on and he uh he cast a an actor from LA and I was given the the wardrobe brief they wanted a tuxedo for him and uh you know I was like where am I gonna get like a cheap tuxedo like you know we'd had budgets and things like that and the guy gave me his measurements and I think I went out to like I don't know men's warehouse and I bought like a cheap tuxedo and the guy showed up and he had lied about his size to get the job. Oh, no. <laughs> so nothing fit. And so we had to film like first thing the next day and I had to go. As they were filming out, I think, in uh, Canmore from Calgary. So I had to go like first thing when Men's Warehouse opened and get the guy like all new stuff. Oh, he my gosh. Because <laughs> he wasn't honest about, you know, his current waist size. Oh. <laughs> so... I ended up buying him, you know, returning the other one, buying this new tuxedo. And then we got there and it fit in the waist, but then the pants were way too long. And of course, I'm in wardrobe, right? Like, I'm supposed to know how to do this stuff, but I never learned to sew. Like, my mom didn't want me to take home ec. She wanted me to take shop. So mm. I don't know how to sew anything. I can't sew a button. Like, now, thankfully, I know how to cook. But, like, I never learned any of that stuff really growing up. So this guy's standing there, and, like, the pants are way too long. And I'm like, what am I going to do? So I just, like, hemmed them with a stapler. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, I don't have a sewing kit. Like, I can't even sew anyway. I might as well. I had to figure it out. Like, Tony K is here expecting this guy to be on set. His pants are too long. i got to solve the problem. So, yeah, I just stapled those pants right up. Look at you. So resourceful. Yeah, you got to be. <laughs> as long as the say, camera didn't pan yeah, down his no. leg. No, I mean, the final shot of it, would the guy wasn't even in it. It was hilarious. <laughs> it was like a dog jumping out of a car with a bow tie. Oh, my gosh. Which, again, like, the when the brief was like, oh, we don't want the guy anymore. We just want a dog with a bow tie. I was like, where am I going to get a bow tie for a dog? <laughs> Turns out just like a kid's bow tie will do. Yeah. But, yeah. <laughs> um, no, it was interesting. Film was great because it did teach me to be really resourceful and to, like, think on my feet and to solve problems really fast and to work with – you know, a number of different types of people. And, uh, and I think actually it was good training for what I do now, like being a business owner and entrepreneur, but working in PR and events and like constantly thinking about how to solve problems. I think it was, um, yeah, really, really useful for my future mm -hmm. endeavors, but definitely mm -hmm. not something I would probably want to revisit again. Yeah. Unless I took like a sewing course. <laughs> You'd probably get an F for stapling things. Probably. And, yeah. I remember probably. one guy even on set one day was like, I lost a button. Can you put it back on for me? And I was like, no. <laughs> You're like, can I safety pin it on you? Maybe <laughs> then. Like, he was like, aren't you wardrobe? I was like, yeah. Can't do it. Sorry. <laughs> it was like the epitome of fake it till you make it. Yeah. Which, I mean, I feel like you have to do when you're building your career. 
Well, and you know, at the end of the day, it's like you're putting clothes on people. Yeah. Like, you know, just you figure it out. <laughs> but there were some funny moments. Oh, I'm sure. And then you also ended up in New York around 07 as well. I did. Mm-hmm, for yes. about a year. Yeah, I had worked here um, for a little while doing a few different few different jobs. Um, ended up after sort of working at Aritzia, I worked in real estate for a little while. And then um, I volunteered with the Contemporary Arts Society. And two gentlemen that were part of the Contemporary Arts Society were involved in a project at the time at the Dominion Hotel down in Gastown. And they needed like an executive assistant to help with things. And I didn't have a full-time job. I was really interested in PR. I had sort of heard about it, done a little bit of interning at like a couple of different shops just on weekends or things like that just to learn a bit more. And so I you know, was offered this job with them and took it, but I sort of made it like a marketing and PR job. Um, for the Dominion Hotel and the Lamplighter, which, you know, is still there. And uh, and really decided to, yeah, come up with all these sort of events and things we could do in the hotel. It was nice. It was sort of like I had this, you know, sort of world is my oyster block of gas town where I could just come up with tons of different things to drive traffic and get people into the Lamplighter. And, uh, and then from that job... I ended up getting a job at uh, Cossette, working in advertising in the copywriting department, and did that for a little while. Didn't love it as much. Took a trip to New York, um, met someone in the art world, and he introduced me to a PR shop that was hiring there. Right. He was from Art Forum. Yes. Yeah. Correct. Yes. And, uh, you know, when someone from Art Forum recommends you to an arts-based PR firm you take notice Mm -hmm. so I was quite lucky in that sense interviewed there and they had a position open and at the time I was a U.S. citizen because of my parents being U.S. citizens and so it was an easy decision just to leave Vancouver and go work in New York. Mm. What did you learn about yourself living in New York and do you miss it? I miss it all the time. I think it's one thing I, I don't really believe in regret but there is definitely a part of me that thinks about what my life would be like if I'd stayed in New York. Mm. I don't dwell on it too much, but it's just such a city that calls to me. It's, um, you know, so vibrant, so many different interesting people, so many things to do, so inspiring. But when you live there, such a grind. Mm -hmm. I mean, we lived, because my partner at the time came with me, and uh, I was making, like, no money. And the only place we could afford was this apartment in the South Bronx, which now is, like, super cool. Like, back then, like, no one really lived in the South Bronx. And uh, we lived in this old, it was like a piano factory. Like, your typical sort of New York warehouse factory apartment. Yeah, but single-pane windows. So in the wintertime, you know, again, cold. (laughs) Um it was so cold in there that you would be like lying in bed with like the duvet up and you'd go like, ah, ah, like that and you would like see your breath in the apartment. Oh my. Yeah, it was freezing cold. But it was cheap and it was like right on the four, five, six. So, you know, easy to get into the city. But yeah, it's tough. I mean, it's really tough living in a city like New York when you can't afford to really enjoy a city like New York. Mm-hmm. And that's, I think, what I struggled with. Like if I had gone there when I was younger you know, 22, 23, I might not have cared so much, but I moved when I was like turning 30 and I'd already, you know, had some good jobs and 
sort of understood what it was like to be able to have a certain type of lifestyle that you're used to. And so to sort of, you know, live in New York for the passion of it was one thing. But, you know, when you're living in an apartment where you can see your breath and like every now and then a little mouse would like scutter around, you're kind of like, yeah. You're like, maybe not. Maybe not for me. (laughs) (laughs) And I didn't want to, you know, get roommates or do that whole thing either. It was tough. Did you enjoy the work you were doing? I did. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely, it was, again, like working in PR there, it's, you know, it's so competitive not just with the number of people vying for space in outlets, but even, you know, amongst your colleagues, you know, lots of competition. When I got there, I mean, I think I had to throw a party like two weeks into my job and I didn't even know where the venue was. I was like, what's 41st Street? Like, okay. Like you really, you were like thrown right into it. But I did love my work. We worked with some really big galleries in Chelsea, some really well-known artists, I was on the team that launched a public art fair in New Orleans called Prospect One, which was really exciting. Um, Yeah, just like really opened up my eyes to the possibilities of, you know, what what a PR job could look like. And the people that you get to meet. And that's one thing I really love about it. It's Mm. like the personalities and the people you get to meet, the stories you get to tell. And New York was a great place for that. Mm. Do you follow on Instagram? His name is New York Miko. I don't. Oh, he's great at documenting just really cool, offbeat New Yorkers and also the signs in New York, the hilarious signs. Oh, yeah. Yeah. If you miss New York, I I feel like you'd really enjoy it. It was funny. When I was living in New York, I had a friend who wrote for the Globe and Mail, and uh, he told me a couple great things about New York. One was like how we like to play this game called This Was That. Because New York is always changing, right? So sometimes you walk down the street and be like, ah, this was that place. Mm. So you kind of would do this game. You're like, ah, this was that. And, you know, now when I go back, I can still like, oh, this was that. Um, And it happens in New York all the time. And then the other thing he told me was, you know that you're a New Yorker. Because there's a big debate about, like, what makes a New Yorker, right? Like, how long is it time spent? Is it, I don't know, just your understanding of the city? Like, what is it? And his belief was you were a New Yorker when you could take the subway and not look at a map. Oh, and so I was like, oh, yeah, that's a good one. So I can still do that. I can still go to New York and get on a subway okay. and like, know where I'm going. And that feels good. I feel like I retained that. And that yeah. You know, that's nice. To yeah. Have. You're you're a New Yorker in there. It's in there. Yeah. 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 And then you came back to Vancouver. <laughs> I came back to Vancouver and uh, I started freelancing with um, some PR jobs, like just like, kind of some one off. PR jobs just like out of my kitchen to start um I worked with Carrie at Shambar and then they opened Cafe Medina Mm -hmm. um so you know started working with some restaurants and uh then you know the Dirty Apron and some other restaurants and uh then you know some CPG products Ethical Bean Coffee was like one of my first big CPG brands that I I worked with this is when you started to create your agency exactly this was half PR before you became milk yes yes Mm -hmm. so yeah it just it was very organic I didn't really intend to come back and uh and have an agency I just you know I knew some people who needed help and I kind of kept in touch with people when I left Vancouver and I actually did some freelance work for some brands here like Pura, the jewelry line. I yes. did some New York-based work for them doing desk sides, which was great. I mean, I got to walk into all the big magazines and 
so I, I had some clients here already, and, and yeah, it just it sort of kept growing, and you know, then I had to bring people on to support, and then I had to get an office and mm. more people. And what do you think makes you really good at your job? Um, I mean, I think I have a real passion for storytelling that comes from just really loving getting deep into what makes a person tick or what makes a great brand story? What, what is something so um, interesting that you can use that to then influence choice, right? Like I think there's this really, there's this art to PR that is really about using creativity to ignite conversations and influence choice, right? Like at the end of the day, we're trying to get people to learn more about brands and hopefully influence them to consider that brand. But it's not easy. It's very nuanced. There's an art form to it. It's not like creating a TV commercial, right? Like it's really getting into the creativity of it. And I think that's what makes me good at it because I've always had that creative spark, you know, mm. back from like the Mirrors catalog days. Yes. I've always just been so interested in, and not in creative in a way where like I want to make art or, you know, I'm terrible at crafting, like all of that <laughs> kind of stuff. But um, but writing and telling stories and writing stories has always been a passion and I've always just felt really connected to it. I think that's, mm-hmm. that's what makes me good at it. And I love people. Yeah. And I love hearing from people, meeting with people, working with people. Um, so, yeah, I guess it's those things. I mean, I'm still learning. It's always changing, Mm -hmm. right? Like, especially PR is changing so fast these days. Mm. In what ways is it changing? Just what it offers. You know, it used to be that you would write a press release and send it out and, you know, sort of call it a day. And you you don't, I didn't really ever subscribe to that necessarily. But, you know, it's just, it's much harder now to get attention. Everything is so fast. And even the mediums where you're getting attention are Mm. changing all the time, Mm -hmm. right? Like, it's such a rapid pace. You have to be very aware of how people are consuming information and what information sticks, right, versus what are people just going to scroll past. And where's your audience? You know, you have to go where people are. Um, We always say that, like, go where people are, not where you wish they were. So you have to be really strategic. It's, It's such an interesting profession because it's, like, really hard to explain to people what we do. I mean, even to this day. I'm actually working with this great company on some mission and values work and like even just trying to explain to them like what PR is, Mm. is really tough because like you're a storyteller, but you're influencing media, but you're working with media, but you're also doing events. But like at the end of the day, it is really, it's, it's building awareness through storytelling. Yeah. And I'm sure a lot of people are like, what's the difference between PR and marketing? And oh yeah. Yeah. You probably get that all the time. All the time. I mean, for a long time. My my grandfather, who lives in L.A. and who is 104 years old. Wow. Yeah, I know. It's amazing. What's his secret? Um, he eats a banana a day. Really? Yeah, bananas. Huh. <laughs> Noted. <laughs> For a long time, it was a fried egg every day, too. But then his doctor told him at, like, 90, he had to stop. <laughs> um, and he still drove a car. And he still goes to work. What? what yeah. Where does he work? Yeah. He had this crazy job for Hamilton Standard working with propellers wow so he is like one of the last few people left in the world that knows everything there is to know about propellers 
That's incredible. So he knows these guys all over the place or, you know, women all over the place that, you know, can get him access to these propellers. And he gets these random calls from people looking for these, like, ancient propellers. And he's, like, he's the guy. Hmm. He still goes the to legend. work every day. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, anyway, I can't remember what we were talking about when we started talking about my grandfather. But <laughs> Oh, my gosh. I lost my train of thought, too. <laughs> I was so interested. I'm like, what is the secret? I well, know. A banana know. and a, a, a passion egg. that he, like, <laughs> yes. lives for. Yes. Or life's work that he yes. that drives him. Yeah. I think that, you know, and that's why I really do believe that if you love what you do, uh, everything just flows. Mm. Right. And I think he just he loves what he does. That's so great. Yeah. Are you going to see him again soon? I would love to. It's been so hard with the pandemic. Yeah. You know, obviously, it's really scary thinking about going to see someone who's 104. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, Being in an airport and mm-hmm. what, what you could be carrying from there. Yeah, yeah. But every year before the pandemic, we'd have a birthday party for him. So I've been to all his birthday parties. Oh, so sweet. Hundredth. And then after the hundredth, it's like, what do we do for the hundred and one? Yeah. Well, you've had quite quite a past few years, both personally and, and professionally mm-hmm. on top of the pandemic. What how, how have you navigated that? Um I think that I when I was turning 40, which was like 4 years ago, <laughs> date myself. Um I was I was really struggling with this sense of loss in knowing who I was because I'd had I had two kids right like I had my oldest Maritz um when I was oh my god I have to do the math like 36 and then Xavier like two years after and you know when you have kids it's beautiful but you also you're so absorbed in what their needs you kind of lose a bit of sense of yourself or your sense of self changes into this sort of idea like, oh, now I'm a mom. And I was never really someone who felt like I wanted to be typecast into anything. So I was never like, oh, now I'm just going to be a mom. Not that it's just a mom. But, you know, I didn't want to be known as only that. But at the same time, I was really struggling with like, well, then who am I? Like, I am this person now that's, you know, responsible for these people. And I'm also a business owner. And I'm all of these things. And I think I, I just felt really confused And so I started to do a lot of personal self-awareness work and um, self-growth work and exploration. And I went on this journey of just like trying anything I wanted to try just to see, you know, will this help me sort of start to re, I think, um, reintroduce myself to myself in a way. And uh, and through that process, you know, I'd, I'd never gone to therapy but you know I started seeing a therapist and that was really really interesting and helpful for me because all of a sudden all of these new pathways were opened up to start to really understand like why am I feeling this way and how do I deal with these emotions and and I think that that process then led me to make a lot of decisions right around my marriage which has now ended um and you know thankfully my ex is a wonderful father and, you know, a great ex-partner. And we co-parent so well. And I'm so grateful for that because I know not everyone has that. Um, 
and I and I really just you know started making decisions that were based on like what do I really want to be and what do I need and I think you know it's difficult to do that because it does feel in some ways still to this day for me I think there's an air of feeling selfish about it right like I know there are so many people that give up on certain things because they want to be something for someone else but my view was like if I'm not happy with where I am and who I am and what I'm doing that is going to translate to how I am with everyone around me, including my kids. And I don't want them growing up knowing me as an unhappy, unfulfilled person. So while it felt selfish, it was actually also a way to really try to model for them to be the best person that I could be. Hmm. And a very difficult choice, right? Um, and so on that, yeah, on that path, I just, I really started to have a, a deeper understanding of this idea of self-actualization. And, um, you know, it's, it's work. It's constant work around growth. Uh, and I think there are some months where I'm really good at it and some months where I kind of taper off. But it's a lifelong process. And, you know, the longest relationship you're going to have is your relationship with yourself. So I started to realize, like, I need to really and want to know myself better. Mm. Just thinking about what you said about selfish and you know, the healing process and, and, and feeling like you're being selfish for, for doing it. Mm -hmm. For and choosing yourself. For, for choosing right? yourself. And that's the thing that, that when you said that, I'm like, oh, that seems so wrong to mm -hmm. feel selfish for wanting to do that. Because as you said, when you choose yourself, you are also being better for others. I think too, it, it comes from, especially when you're a parent, right? Like it's no longer just about you. And if you make it about you, it feels wrong. It, it feels like you're not, um, you know, putting those other little people first. And I think that's how a lot of people, right or wrong, end up, you know, staying in relationships maybe they don't want to be in and living, in, you know, together with someone they don't want to be with until their kids are 18 and out the door. And, you know, I certainly thought about that, but... Again, it comes down to like, what is the relationship I'm going to have with my kids if I do that and I'm unhappy? And what are they going to learn from me? What are they going to learn about love? You know, what are they going to see day in and day out? I really wanted to model for them this idea of what love, you know, really looks like. And in a way, I think now, difficult as it has been for them, the love that my ex and I have for each other and the way that we show it and the way that we can co-parent together is such a beautiful model of love. It's not traditional. It's not what most people expect. But I think for me, they're seeing that love can exist outside of these norms and traditions and ways of being that we've been so taught to believe or like this or that, right? Like it's only one way or you're going to end up, you know, a sad single woman. <laughs> and especially if you can respect both parties can respect each other. Exactly. And again, I recognize that not everyone is as fortunate as I am. I'm very, very grateful for that. Um, but I, I do think that, you know, there will be some tough conversations, I'm sure, with my kids down the road around why things happened the way they did. But, you know, my ex and I are, like, very supportive of each other. And, you know, we balance each other out and we talk about things and we try to stay on the same page with everything. And we're very aligned. And I think that is you know, a great thing for them to see that two people cannot be together but still love each other and mm. co-parent well. And again, like exist outside of this idea 
of what we've been taught and told is what you're supposed to do, mm. right? Get married and stay together for the kids, even if you hate it every day. <laughs> I just, I don't think that's the way to live personally. No, no. Knowing what you know now, what does love feel like to you? I mean, I think love in its purest form is um, very selfless, right? Which is why when I was talking about feeling selfish, it's tough for me because I do think that like a real model of love is just a complete selflessness. But I also think that you can't be selfless until you love yourself first, right? Like you have to have that because I think sometimes people look to other people people another person a partner to love them to fill the holes or the gaps of the things that they don't love about themselves and then they're constantly taking from that person they're taking and taking and taking because they need that validation or that security or that you know feeling of of wholeness that they don't have and that I think is is more transactional that's not what a real love is and I think until you fully you know love yourself know yourself, understand yourself. And you don't need that from another person. You can just selflessly love them and, you know, not need them for anything. And I think the other thing that I've realized too is that you can't look to someone else to bring you happiness. Like it's, it's a, it's sort of a lost cause because then, you know, the other person is what you rely on or who you rely on to make you happy. And then they feel the weight of that. And then it's exchange of like, who can make me happy versus just being happy on your own and then allowing the other person to just exist in that space that you have, right? But we've been taught, again, like, oh, happiness comes from meeting the right person. That's when you'll finally be happy. Mm. And I, I think that's a really flawed concept. Right. Yeah, the idea of, of spaciousness, it's something that came up in in the last episode with, with Steve Rio, mm -hmm. who, who you're friends with mm -hmm. as well. And yeah, just the idea of like, being able to give that other person space to to be there is there's a kind of freedom in that for you and that person yeah absolutely um you know there's this book the mastery of love that's a fantastic book uh that talks about this idea of happiness and how you can't ex you can't expect that from someone else and it's this um, this story of this man who doesn't believe in love and, you know, doesn't think it exists. And he meets a woman who also doesn't believe in love and doesn't think it exists. And, of course, they become really good friends. And then as they become friends, they also decide that, like, they actually really love each other and they want to be lovers. But they don't expect anything from each other, right? Like, they still exist in this place where they just, you know, are happy with the other person and who they are but they don't expect this exchange of happiness because they never believed in like this idea of love and then one day the man catches this star and he's so excited because he has this beautiful star in his hands and he wants to give it to the woman that he loves because it's going to make her happy and she takes it and she breaks it and then all of a sudden she feels awful because she's taken this thing that was supposed to bring happiness and it's broken. And then the, the relationship ends because mm -hmm. all of a sudden it becomes like this exchange of happiness that never existed before. And he feels like he can never now bring her happiness again and she feels like she can never hold his happiness. Mm -hmm. And I think it's such a great example of when you start to think about someone bringing you happiness, how it can all fall apart. Right. Oh, you talking about that reminds me of um, a Khalil Gibran quote poem about marriage mm. and it talks about you know you know two 
the two people being pillars but not taking each other's space or um you know like them being the two lovers being trees but never standing in, in each other's shadows so mm. there's the idea mm. of like being able to have that that space and separateness doesn't mean there's less love absolutely not yeah I think you have to be a whole and complete person and you know your partner has to be a whole and complete person and you're sort of these two and my friend Michael Green gave me this so I'll give him a shout out Thanks, Michael. Um, you have these two circles, but then your relationship is a separate circle. Mm. So it's not like the two circles come together and merge, right? Like a Venn diagram style. <laughs> like it's like there's two whole circles and then another circle that is the relationship. Mm. And I think that's the way to really look at it because otherwise, you know, you're so dependent on someone else. Not to say you don't want to have someone to lean on or someone to look to or someone to support you, but. You know, I think this is the constant sort of battle that we're in. It's like trying to decide between how can I be independent? How can I be with someone? How can I retain who I am and not lose myself, right? And I think we've just been taught so much that the goal is to find someone to make us happy. And that's right. where it all starts to, you know, mm -hmm. the star starts to break. Mm. Right. And about what about professionally? What have you learned in the last couple of years? I mean, I think I've really learned, um, and I, I fully admit I haven't always been the best at this, but um, I've really learned to try to be incredibly empathetic. Uh, you know, it's, it's tough when you run a team of people that you don't have like an HR department, right? And you're trying to run a business, you know, keep the business going, keep the clients happy, keep the team happy. Uh, and inevitably, you know, there are people who will have conflicts or, you know, people who, you know, aren't getting what they need. And I think because when my business was really, really busy and because I had two young kids, sometimes I just I didn't always have the energy to share. And it was very hard to be so emotionally available and emotionally empathetic to people when I was also like the only source sometimes of emotional support for you know two little kids so it was it was really draining but I wasn't aware of that being draining at the time and I think now when I look back on it I realize that um, I could have been much better with empathy and it's something that I've really committed to going forward really trying to empathize empathize sorry with um with my with my team and the people who work for me and the clients right like through the pandemic a lot of what we had because we lost so much of our you know fun lifestyle event work was a lot of crisis communications and the crisis communications work you know really being able to say to a client like I'm so sorry you're going through this this must be really difficult for you it opens up so much more trust and understanding and a pathway to having deeper conversations to get them through difficult times. So professionally, I think empathy has been something that I've really learned can be so valuable to make people feel safe. Mm. Yeah, creating the safe spaces for other mm -hmm. people. It's one of the, I feel like it's one of the greatest gifts that we can give one another. Absolutely, mm. yeah. So you and I have both done five MEO. I know. <laughs> yes. So thank you Wild. for sharing your story about that. It's really what, what began my path toward it. Um, but I'd love to know what you have learned because it's such an ego death as, as Ooh, yeah. you and I and anyone who's experienced it knows. Mm -hmm. What have you learned about your, your, your ego? Mm. And also, how are you keeping it 
I want to say, I guess, in check since that experience because it's so easy once you you leave that a couple of weeks later, mm-hmm. the world starts to creep back in and yeah. you start catching yourself or you start seeing things that you do where you look at yourself and you're like, wow, I've got to look at that a little bit more mm-hmm. deeply. Yeah, I think it's, you know, it's been really interesting to come out of that experience and um, feel so reborn in so many ways. But also, you know, I, I think what I have been able to still access is this deeper sense of peace. Like once you can shed your ego or put it aside, just this sense of peace and, um, and comfort but I will say that, you know, slowly I feel like the world has been, like, creeping back in a little bit more. I might have to go Steve, go see Steve in <laughs> Austin again. <laughs> Terrifying as it was uh, for me. <laughs> um, but, you know, it's funny. Like, I don't know. I have to listen to the the episode because I haven't yet. But, you know, Steve talked about how you leave with this cricket, which is basically, you know, it's not like this chirpiness that you hear all the time, but it's like this voice inside you. I don't know if you've experienced it too, that's sort of like, hey, have you thought about it this way though? Mm-hmm. It's like this extra voice now that's there that's not your ego, it's something else. Mm. And it's a gentle, but it's like a very, mm, but you might be looking at it wrong. It might actually be this. And that's what I've really found to be incredibly beneficial in those moments where things feel tough or, mm. you know, I'm going through a rough patch with whatever personally or professionally just to be able to pause. It's almost like it teaches you how to pause that like chatter that you get all the time from the ego and then listen to the cricket. Mm, That's what I found. Yeah. No, I, now that you say that, that is true because yeah, there are definitely, I I shared with, with, with Steve, um, a road rage incident I had Mm. last week and yeah. And I had been feeling so blissful for two weeks and, this woman, it was totally my fault. So I should have shoulder checked. Um, and, but she triggered me so much mm. and I reacted the way that she was reacting towards me, but probably times like five more. <laughs> um, I can't imagine that. I, that's what Steve said as well. But this is, I was saying to him, that's usually where it comes out for me is like on the road with other people. Mm. And so, yeah, when I reacted the way that I did, Later on that night, I had a, a good laugh. Um, but also, I, I thought to myself, oh, I should maybe look at this. Like, mm-hmm. what about this is triggering me? Where is that coming from? Where is that coming from? Yeah. yeah. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, it's interesting. You know, during the pandemic, my friend Bo that I mentioned, who I met at Ooh La La, uh, <laughs> we wrote a book. Um, called Cinderella you yes congratulations thank you and it is about it's about your relationship with yourself and then your relationship with yourself when you're in relationship with another which is a little bit of a different spin right than most relationship books that are just about the other and one of the things that we talk about is this idea of being where you can ask yourself like how am I being in this moment like am I being open am I being reserved? Am I being joyful? Am I being angry? And even just taking a moment, and I just used it the other day when I was, you know, in a bit of a moment with someone and I was like, wait a minute, but how am I being in this moment for that person? Am I being open? Am I being loving? Or am I being a bit aggravated? 
And as soon as you can start to recognize how you're being, you can then choose to be another way. So you can think about that next time I you have some that. road rage. Mm, yeah. <laughs> well, that's the thing now is that that cricket you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Like uh, it, I'll stop m- more before I get into those triggered situations because that's not how I want to be. Exactly. And then if you just ask yourself that simple question, you know, how am I being? And you can connect to it. It opens up the opportunity for you to be the way you would like versus mm. the way you are. Right. Mm. I'd love to talk about the book. Mm. Yes. Oh yeah. How is that? I mean, you love writing, and you're yeah. an, you're an excellent one for thank you for anyone who wants to read some of her writing. You actually wrote one about your five MEO experience, I did. and it was really beautiful. Thank so people you. check it out. It's on Vitruvi's Our Natural Habitat. Mm-hmm. Um, but how was that process writing a book for you, for you individually, but then also? writing in conjunction with another I mean it was interesting like Bo and I had always joked about writing a book he was the person that I would call and vice versa he would call me when we were going through certain relationship challenges and you know as a lot of best friends are he was a great support but he also would kind of like give my head a shake or I remember one time being really sad about some guy and him being like oh my god I'm sending the violins to your lawn right now <laughs> like you know he would sort of he, he would give me the the real talk and because I had lost a lot of work and he too he works as a celebrity makeup artist in LA and events were canceled and you know photo shoots were canceled um we just started talking about like maybe we should revisit this idea of writing a book and it was really amazing for our friendship. I mean, we were already really close, but we weren't the friends that would like text or talk every day. And our friendship just blossomed and grew so much stronger over the course of writing. And we had so many great conversations and, you know, really emotional moments. Um, And I think so much of our own growth, right? Like I I did a lot of the writing, Bo would, I would basically like, I would write, Um, the chapters and we had very like strict deadlines on when chapters were due and you know all of these things and we spent a lot of time on our outline before we even started the writing process so because we spent all that time our writing process time was really shrunk and so I would sort of like try to bang it out and then Bo would go in and like put in some other thoughts and ideas and we would talk about it together and it was just this really beautiful synergy that we found between each other. But it was also really therapeutic. Like I wrote the chapter on breakups and I like there's a joke in the book about like, you know, if you don't process your emotions around breakups, you'll find yourself day drinking, listening to Mazzy Star, <laughs> writing a chapter about breakups. Hypothetically, of course. <laughs> Not like... that you listen to fade into you too many times, oh, right? No, <laughs> never, never. But like it was it was really, you know, it was such a therapeutic process in a lot of ways too. And I and I learned so much. We did a lot of research Bo actually did I would say the majority of the research he's done an incredible amount of transformational work and so he had access to a lot of these ideas and teachings and thinking uh, that he was able to impart onto me and then I would try to you know craft them into these chapters and then we'd talk about it and then he'd edit and I'd edit it was great you know it gave us a real sense of purpose um and, you know, Bo has talked about this, but he went through some depression as well during the pandemic, and it was really helpful for him. It got him out of bed, and, you know, we'd be up. And then once I got busier with work, like, I was looking at 
chapter edits at like 6 a.m. and then doing a full work day and then looking at them again in the evening with him. Like we had to kind of find ways to slot it in. But just such an incredible journey for us, really. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and the book is really about, you know, this idea of choosing to choose, you know, like choosing how you want to be, choosing what story you want for yourself. We talked to Mark Groves for the book, who's a, you know, fantastic relationship, sort of human connection specialist, I think is what he calls himself. Yeah, he's great. He's amazing. And he has this great line where he said, it's choice, not chance Mm. when it comes to romantic relationships, right? And I think so many people think, oh, if I just meet this guy, like if just happened to be here at the right time. But, you know, we've all been sort of taught this idea of this fairy tale or like meeting the right person when really it comes down to your choice. It's not chance. Mm. You get to choose. You get to choose what you want. You get to choose how you want to be. And when you start being a different way, you start attracting different people. Right? 100%. It's all like vibrational. Um, and yeah, I think that there was so much learning that happened in writing that book for me and for Bo. It's, uh, I think it's, it's one of the things that I will forever be grateful for. It's mm. like a real achievement. Yeah. Yeah. It's almost like it's, it is a book, you know, the product, but it also seems like it's more than the book. Yeah, I think it was, um, you know, it was difficult because we shared very personal stories. And even in that process, you know, I've struggled a lot with vulnerability and, you know, I can get walled off. Um, I think that happened particularly when, you know, you're building a business and trying to be tough and, you know, trying to pitch for business and you know you kind of think that there's this mentality of how you need to be maybe to be competitive I don't know and so it was a real exercise in vulnerability for me particularly and and for Bo too and we share these personal stories throughout the book but we really wanted to have the reader feel safe and for the reader to feel like a friend and the only way we could really do that was if we treated them like that and we were open to them as a friend would be and um it was, again, I think such an amazing thing for us to be able to do, to put on paper, and then to be able to share, you know, those things with the world. It's, mm. That's the that's the beauty of storytelling, right? It really is. Yeah. Yeah, and, you know, sometimes just being able to see yourself in someone else, you know, in their story mm-hmm. is so, it makes you feel less alone. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because sometimes you can feel like whatever you're going through, like nobody else feels what I'm feeling, and but it's not it's not true. Yeah, and you know it was funny because when we were going through the process of writing the book, we had this amazing editor, Joanna Henry, and I did get to a spot where I was like, should we really be doing this? Like we're not relationship coaches. <laughs> Why do we have a right to be writing a relationship book? <laughs> uh, and I was I was I was like feeling. I think like quite a lot of imposter syndrome and Joanna made this great point and I've shared this story before, but I'm going to do it again because I think it's just so amazing. She said, you know, if you're a therapist, you're at the top of the pit and you're coaching someone who's at the bottom of the pit, how to come out. But when you're a best friend, like you're getting into the pit and you're bringing the snacks Mm. and you're bringing the tools and you're helping the person out and you go up with them. And I really felt like that's what we tried to create with the book was this idea that like we're with the reader, we're in the pit, and we're all going to come out together. Mm. So that process was really beautiful. And I think it's such a great way to frame how we decided to write the book and, what, and what it ended up being. Mm. 
Well, congratulations again. Thank you. That's so huge. And yeah, uh, everybody, it's uh, on Amazon and also at Barnes and Nobles. It is. Nobles. Noble. (laughs) Barnes and Noble. Indigo. Yeah. It was wild. I just walked into the Indigo on Granville like last week and there it was on shelves. Oh my gosh. This is so surreal. That's amazing. (laughs) It's such an accomplishment. I'm so proud of you, my friend. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I know that uh, you've got a bit of a busy afternoon, so Mm -hmm. I just have a couple more questions for you. Um, my question is, what would you like your boys to know about you? I think I would like them to know that I love them so deeply. I mean, I think I hope that they feel that every day. Um, but also that I am this like very creative sort of you know, wild, free, incredible spirit that I don't think they get to see all the time because, you know, I have to be the mom that tells them to, like, get dressed and get out the door for school, (laughs) right? Like, I would love for them to see me as the loving, life-loving, adventure-seeking, passionate person that I am you know I, I really believe that I just want to like suck everything I can out of life and it's hard to do that when you're parenting sometimes right it's hard to find like all of those joyful moments where you can really feel that when you're also trying to like get them to stop wringing each other's necks mm-hmm. <laughs> or fighting um which is you know two brothers they do a lot so yeah I think as I think if they could see me as someone who really tried to just like suck all the juice out of life that would make me happy yeah, all of your layers. Yes. Mm. Yeah. My final question, the question I ask everyone. Yeah. With what you do, what is it that you want to leave behind in the world? I think I just want to leave behind a really deep understanding of love and acceptance that I can hopefully nurture through my boys and they can teach, you know, if they decide to have them, their kids. You know, I, th- I think that it's not for me about leaving behind, you know, a legacy of wealth or material things. You know, at the end of the day, all they can really have is a sense of peace and understanding and love and compassion. And if I can leave that behind with them and they can continue to carry that on, then I'd be happy. Mm. Well, you're already leaving it behind. <laughs> and I just want to say and acknowledge that you know I have I've known you through the years for a really long time and Mm. as I said we've grown closer over the the last couple of years and just to witness your growth over four years I would say Mm. since your your 40th has been really a yeah like a privilege to watch thank you so there is definitely this openness about you now Mm. that has just been so heartwarming and it's and I feel like I've gotten to know more of your layers too so thank you thank you for your friendship oh thank you it's very kind of you to say Mm -hmm. makes me happy (laughs) thank you so much for your time thank you it's been a pleasure if you enjoyed that last conversation be sure to check out more episodes with craft on spotify and guest photo galleries on the website at wearethecraft.com thanks again for listening